Welcome back, and thanks for joining me again. You know, a revolution has happened in the 20th century with an understanding of what the DNA structure looks like. The discovery of the shape of the DNA, that of the double helix, is one of the greatest advances of mankind. It was discovered by Watson and Crick in 1953, for which, rightfully so, they received the Nobel Prize. And indeed, the design of the DNA, this double helix, determined how it behaves as a molecule and how it interacts with other molecules. So we see what we learned from the first time of these lectures, that form and functions are actually interrelated, even in the DNA as well. The structure of the DNA is extremely elegant, formed by the shape of this double helix with two strands perfectly interweaving between each other. Now, let's try to think like a mathematician. What does a mathematician do with this? Well, one thing you can do is take this idea and see how we can model this or generalize this principle of a double helix. From the world of a topologist, this twisting is what's important and the fact that there are these two strands weaving in, forming the double helix. But what happens when these strands, which weave beautifully in the DNA, are not so nicely organized? What happens if we throw in complexity to it? Well, instead of talking about one circle knotted, which we've been talking about so far, this lecture considers links, which are several circles that are knotted together. They can be individually knotted in form of these links, or they can be tangled together with each other in different complexities. Let's consider some famous examples of links. Take a look at these pictures. Here we see the unlink. This is analogous to the unknot since there's no linking between the components and there's no linking within the components. The simplest form of link where it's not the trivial unlink is the Hofflink. And this is the link we're most familiar with. These are the links that form chains. So the Hofflink is simply two circles linked together in the simplest and most natural way possible. We also have the Whitehead link. Now the Whitehead link has a little extra twist compared to the Hofflink. And Whitehead and Hoff are both very famous mathematicians where these links, based on their name, appear in very powerful ideas in three-dimensional objects. We'll talk about some of those later. Now the Whitehead link also has a different presentation, a different projection, which looks like this. It's the exact same link, except drawn a little bit differently, projected in a different way. Similar to knots, links are equivalent up to isotopy. We can take the links in our hands and we can stretch it, but again, we're not allowed to glue or cut. Now for their projections, we again have Reitermeister moves. Notice the projections of knots and links locally around a small area look identical. They're still pieces of string. Maybe the string is related to two different separate components. That's where we get links from. Or maybe there are strands of the same component where we get knots from. Similarly here, we can see that with this Whitehand link where we have these two separate projections, there is a collection of Reitermeister moves, one, two, and three, that takes the left whitehead link projection to the right whitehead link projection. 
Now let's consider links with more than two components. These examples that I've given you so far are just two component links. But what about the following here? This looks somehow like a generalization of this Hoff link, and it is. Here's a classic chain link with three components. Now, the Borromean rings are based on an Italian family crest that appeared on their shields and their family logos. And they have a beautiful property. Let me show you the Borromean rings and how they're different than this chain link here. The Borromean rings look like this. You almost feel the, the Olympic symbol starting to be formed. But here's the beautiful property of the Borromean rings. If I delete any one of the rings, say I delete the green one, then what happens is, if you notice, that the red and the black are completely unlinked. I can pull them apart. But now what happens if I delete the red one? If I delete the red one, notice that the green and the black can elegantly pull apart. And similarly, if I delete the black one, then the green and the red can pull apart. This is the power of the Moromian rings. Although they're together, tangled together, separately, two by two by two, they're completely trivial. They're completely unlinks. Now, this is not the case that we have with this chain link. If I delete that red component in the middle, of course, we can pull the other two apart. But if I delete the green or the black, you have this natural linking that goes on. So the Borromean rings have this beautiful property. Now, similar to knots, we are trying to tell links apart. So here, from these two examples of links with three components, we see that one has this Borromean-like properties of pulling things apart by deleting links. But we have to look deeper than just this. Thus, our goal is to find link invariance things that don't change based on the link itself. No matter how we look at the projections of the link, we still want to end up with the same property associated to it. Remember, an invariant is a property that does not change as our links are deformed. No matter how I pull or stretch, the fundamental property of an invariant is based on the link itself and not the way we look at it, not the way we stretch it, or the way we project it and look at their projections. The number of components in our link is our first linking invariant. This is completely easy and the most natural thing to think about. So for example, the simple chain link has three components. The unlink and the Hoff link and the whitehead link, as these pictures show, have two components. So you see the unlink has two components, the Hoff link has two, and the Borromean rings have three. So we can tell those apart because of the number of components. But that seems quite easy. We want more. We want more. Now, under this invariant of number of components, notice that all knots get the value 1. Thus, this invariant, although it is an honest invariant, tells the knots apart in no way possible. All knots get grouped into one clump. Well, the linking number is what we're interested in today. The linking number is between any two components of our link is our third, sorry, is our second invariant that we care about. The first is the number of components, and now we're going to find a new way of calculating this number. Now, the linking number is computed as follows, but before we go into the calculation, I want to make you understand what it's really about. Let me show you this picture right here. 
This is a, this is a sample of two links put together. And you see the complexity of the white strand and the complexity of the black strand. But what I'm really interested in is not the complexity of the white or the black. I'm just really interested in how they're related to one another. In other words, I don't care about the complexity of the white here or about the complexity of the black, just they're linking between them. So let's find a way to measure this. Well, let's take a look at some pictures. The first thing we do in order to compute the linking number is we do something called orientation. So we orient each component of the link by choosing a direction to travel. So consider these two components. I pick any place I want and I arbitrarily choose a direction to travel. And you just draw a simple arrow telling you that's the direction you're gonna travel throughout this entire component. Similarly, I can pick an arrow on the other component completely independently. So I'm gonna pick this arrow for both of these guys, and this is the way they're gonna travel throughout my link. Great, that's the first thing we do. The second thing we do is we look at crossings between different components. Remember what we talked about last time. We're not interested in how one component mixes with itself. We want to know how the crossings between these two components are put together. So we only focus on crossings of two separate components, where the red component and the black component meet. Now we look at each crossing such that the arrows at that crossing in a zoomed in perspective are always pointing towards the top. Let's take a look at this picture. So when I zoom in close enough to my knot picture, to my link picture, what I want is that I want the two arrows to be pointing towards the top. What if they're not pointing towards the top? I can always rotate my head or move my link around so that according to the orientations, my arrows are always pointing to the top. Now, if my strand with two arrows pointing to the top, the strand that's going on top, the over strand, has a positive slope, rise over run is a positive value, then I assign a plus one number to this crossing. But if my crossing, which with two arrows pointing to the top again, if my overstrand at this crossing has a negative slope, then I assign a minus one to this crossing. So at every crossing where two separate components meet, I either give a plus one value or a minus one value based on how I oriented the knot in the first place. And here's what we do. We take all the values together that we get for the entire link at every crossing where two separate components meet, and we add them together. For example, in this previous picture, we see that there's one, two, three, four, five, six places where these two red and black components meet, and each one gets a value of plus one. We add it all together, we get the number six, and then we do something very important. We divide by two. Since we have these two components that meet, we divide it by two. Thus the value of the linking number of this particular link is three, six divided by two. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait, this linking number seems to be based on the arrows and how it's pointing. That's how I get the pluses and minus one values. Well, what happens if you pick your orientation the way you want to travel around the components, and I pick my orientation the way I want? Will this value change? Well, let's take a look. What happens if I take my crossing 
of two different components with both arrows pointing up. Now here the red has that overcrossing, so my value at this, at this crossing is plus one. What happens if I chose to orient my red component in the opposite direction? If I chose my red in the opposite direction, my arrow would now point down instead of up. But remember how we always measure the plus or minus one values. They always have to be pointing up. So I need to rotate my head or rotate the picture to make sure those two arrows are now pointing up. And when I do that, I notice the following thing. What used to be a plus one crossing, because the red had that positive slope, now since my red's arrow has switched, now my red has a negative slope. Thus all my plus one values become minus one. And similarly, if I look at the second piece of the puzzle, where I have my red behind my black, where my black has this negative slope, if I switch my red values around to point the other way, now I need to rotate my head to make sure I'm pointing the arrows in the same way to measure my value. What used to be a minus one, because my black has a negative slope, now becomes plus one, because now my black has positive slope. So what does this mean? This means if I choose the orientations arbitrarily, my linking number values change. So thus, we want to take the absolute value of the linking number. This way, once you take all your values of plus and minus ones in your crossings, add them all up, divide by two, we take the absolute value, and we don't have to worry about the way we oriented it. Now we come to a natural question. What does this have to do with an invariant? Seems like I just made it up. Why is this necessarily an invariant? Remember, we need to check the three Reitermeister moves to make sure that this value of the crossings that we're getting, this linking number, does not change based on the three Reitermeister moves. Let's take a look. Look at this first figure. Here you see Reitermeister move one. And if you look at Reitermeister move one, I introduce a vertical line, which now, because of a twist, has an extra crossing here. But if you notice, what the linking number measures, it only measures crossings between two separate components. So thus, in this particular picture, that new crossing that I get does not even register for my linking number because it's a crossing of the same component with itself. So what used to have linking number value, which contributed nothing before, now with this extra twist, still contributes nothing. So I get no new values for my linking number to change based on Reitermeister move one. So I can perform Reitermeister move ones all I want. My linking number does not change. Now, what about Reitermeister moves two and three? Let's take a look at these. If you have Reitermeister move two, let's orient each of these two strands up, have one of the black ones pointing up, and let's have one of the red ones pointing up. Now, on the left side here, before I perform my Reitermeister move two, how much does this contribute to my linking number? You see that the strands don't even cross at all. So my linking number does not get a new value based on this local property. So it has this net contribution of zero. So what happens if I take my red strand and push it under my black strand? Well, I've introduced two new crossings. Let's look at these crossings in detail. Remember, I've oriented arbitrarily my two strands to be pointing up. If I zoom in at these crossings, you see that the first crossing, the one in the bottom, has a value of plus one that I get, and the top crossing has a value of minus one. Thus, 
the net contribution that this would give to my linking number would give me a plus one and a minus one value, would give me a value of nothing extra. So if my Reitermeister 2 move, which used to have a value of nothing extra contributed to my linking number, but performing this Reitermeister 2, two crossings that are introduced, but they both cancel out perfectly. So my linking number value does not change as I perform Reitermeister move 2. What about Reitermeister move 3? Here, let's take a look at an example. Now, we can color these three strands in several ways, but I've chosen to color one black and the other two red. Now, there are three crossings here, but we only care about two of them because the third crossing has two red components, the same component, so we just leave it alone. Now, on the left side, we have, if I orient all my strands arbitrarily, let's just make them point to the top for now, then we see at the bottom we have a value of minus one coming to my linking number, and the top we have a value of plus one. So thus, if this was my local picture that I'm taking the snapshot of, my linking value at the total gives me a net value of zero. So my linking value so far is unchanged. But what happens if I take that black strand and cross it over that crossing, the two red strand crossings? Now, if I look at the bottom crossing, instead of it used to being a minus one, now it's a plus one. But the top crossing, which used to be a plus one, now becomes a minus one. Which means if I perform right on my move three, my crossings, although the values are different, the total value remains the same. There is no change. So what have we learned? That the Reitermeister moves do not change the linking number values. If I do Reitermeister move one on a particular projection, nothing changes. If I do Reitermeister moves two on a particular projection, its values don't change. And if I move Reitermeister move three on a particular projection, it doesn't change again. But we know from Reitermeister's theorem, I can get from any projection to any other projection with these three moves. That means if I compute the linking number for this projection, I have basically computed the linking number for every projection possible. Which means I have found the linking number of the link itself. The linking number is an invariant. Now let's consider some examples of the linking number to actually calculate this. Here we see the linking number of two circles which aren't touching each other, the unlink, to be zero. There's no crossing, and thus it has linking number zero, which is intuitively obvious for what we want it to be. Fantastic. But what about the linking number of a Hofflink? We orient any way we want. Remember, at the end, we're going to take the absolute value, so it doesn't matter. We orient any way we want. We look at the two crossings. Both crossings have, in this particular picture, value of plus one. Thus, I add them together, I get plus two, divided by two, the half link has linking number one. Now this makes sense, because it's the simplest form of linking we can think of. And this is why we divide by two, because this link, the simplest link, we want to have linking number one. Now what about the whitehead link? If we look at this particular picture, we have four crossings. It turns out two of them on the right two turn out to be plus one, and the left two, both crossings have value minus one. I add up all four things, and I get total value of zero. Okay, that's what the linking number says, which means no matter how I move the half link around, I'm going to get value zero. But didn't I have the value zero for the unlink? Well, it turns out that the linking number is an invariant, but it's not that powerful. It is able to tell the half link apart from the unlink, but it cannot tell 
the whitehead link apart from the unlink. Just like knots, we want to be more clever in trying to find ways of studying the linking number. Now, how does a mathematician think? This idea of adding up crossing information sounds beautiful. And it feels like we can use this beautiful idea on other things. Remember, we were motivated by this from the DNA linking. So we naturally ask, why not try this idea on knots? Seems like so far all we've tried on knots are coloring. Maybe we can take this plus minus one crossing information and throw it on knots and see what we can get out of it. Let's see what we can salvage. So we now introduce a way of trying to make this work on knots. And we call this calculation the right of a knot. Here's what we do. The first thing we do, just like links, is we orient the knot. The second thing we do is we obtain a value at every crossing. Remember the linking number only cared about values between two separate components, and it didn't care about the same component? Well, here we only have one component, so we need to be sensitive towards everything. There's no other component for us to worry about, because it's a knot. So I look at each crossing, and I give a value to it. So here, in this particular case, we give a crossing value of plus one, minus one, minus one, minus one, plus one, plus one, and plus one. Those are all my crossing informations based on the identical way I used to do it before. Point the arrows to the top. If you have a positive slope, you get plus one. If you have negative slope, you get minus one. And what do I do? I add all the values up just like before, and I get the value plus one. It turns out there are four plus one values in this link and three minus ones, so my sum becomes plus one. But here we don't need to divide by two. We just leave this value plus one here. We don't need to divide by two because there's not this other component I need to worry about. It's the same component. And this is how I find the right. Now you might say, well, what happens if I change the crossing information based on the orientation? What if I'd oriented this exact same knot in a different way? maybe I would get a different value for the right. What about the absolute value that I did before? Well, let's take a look at this example. If I take this crossing information right here and change the arrows because of my orientation, both my arrows change. Why? Because my entire knot changes in terms of its orientation. So this crossing arrow becomes down and this crossing arrow also points down. Now instead of rotating my head 90 degrees, I have to rotate it 180 degrees to bring the arrows up again. And when I do it, I see a crossing that used to be positive remains positive. And a crossing that used to be negative remains negative. Which means, if I change orientation, my right doesn't change. So let's consider some really simple examples. Here we have the trefoil. And if we compute the right of the trefoil, we see that you have three negative one values and we get a negative three. Great. If we compute the right for the figure eight, we have four values, two plus ones and two minus ones. Remember, orientation doesn't matter. Right does not care. And at the end of the day, we get a value of zero. So you might ask the question, who cares? Is this just a silly calculation? Or can we actually say something about this and make it used for knots? Remember last time we proved that the linking number wasn't invariant by doing the right moves. And then it became a useful, powerful tool. I've just made up this rule. Mathematicians are trying to see what we can get out of it. So we make up this rule for knots and see if it's an invariant. Well, let's take a look. 
Is it an invariant under Reitermeister moves two and three? Well, if we take a look at Reitermeister move two, we see that we have two of the same strands just like before. And if I cross under, I get a plus one and a minus one value. Wait, this is exactly what we did last time for the linking number. So all my proof for the Reitermeister two for the linking number is identical for my right. Fantastic. Well, what about my Reitermeister move three? I have three crossings. Now I have that middle crossing to worry about. I have a plus one, a plus one, and a minus one. And I do my swing over of my strand on the other side. And that central crossing still remains plus one. And the other two now becomes minus one and plus one. They switch just like before. In fact, I'm not doing anything new. My total right on one side added up to plus one. And my total right on the other side adds up to plus one. Which means this is great. The right of my move two work. The right of my move three works. But what about right of my move one? We've saved the best for last. Let's try it. If I take a right of my move one, notice that it gets no crossings, so it has no contribution towards my right. But if I put a little twist in there, look what happens. My right value increases. And if I have a right of my move one, and if I put an other kind of twist, the opposite twist in my R1 moves, my right of my move one, it decreases. This is depressing. This is not a not invariant. It works for Reitermeister moves two and three, but it doesn't keep the same values for Reitermeister move one. Well, what does a mathematician do? We say this is not a bad thing at all. Somehow, what we have created is sensitive to Reitermeister move one. It doesn't care about the two and three, but somehow it can taste that Reitermeister move oneness. Now, what does this number measure for knots? It's not a knot invariant, but it's measuring something. And the answer is that it's measuring something to do with my belt. Now, let's pretend I have a collection of belts here, and I perform right on my move two crossing over those belts, or right on my move threes. Notice that my belt itself hasn't changed shape as I perform crossing changes with other belts that are lying right next to it. But let's perform a Reitermeister move one. If I perform a Reitermeister move one, you have a move that looks like this. But now if I pull it, notice that my belt itself has fundamentally twisted. This is what the right measures. It's measuring the kind of twist a belt goes through when you perform a Reitermeister move one. This belt does not go through any kind of a twisting by two and three because I'm just pushing the belt around over the crossings. But if I do a Reitermeister move one this way, it twists in one direction. And if I perform a Reitermeister move the other way, it twists in another direction. So we see this kind of twisting is exactly what the Reitermeister move one measures. And the right is not an invariant for knots, but it is an invariant for ribbons. Imagine you have a ribbon or a belt that forms in the shape of a knot. And the right is useful for measuring such ribbon knots. Indeed, the DNA itself can be thought of as a twisted ribbon in this helix. And this is what the Reitermeister move is measuring in terms of the right. So we have come full circle. We were motivated by DNA with a double strand, which led to links, which we then came up with the linking number, which was an invariant. And we pushed it onto knots to find the right of these ribbon strands. So in conclusion, what have we done? We've considered DNA motivating our work. 
which has helped us to generalize to this idea of a right. Now the right itself is not a non-invariant, but it is useful for thickened strands that look like ribbons. Now this is a general property of mathematics. We take an idea like the linking number, we prove that it works, and we generalize and extend and push it onto knots. We try to salvage it as much as we can. And if we can't, we notice what it really is trying to measure. In the next lecture, we study one of the most powerful knot invariants ever discovered, the Jones polynomial. Stay tuned.